Good morning, Seven Mile Road. My name is uh, Bruce Wesley. I am uh, the pastor at Clear Creek Community Church in League City, Texas. And uh, I'm really honored to be here uh, to speak to you. If you wonder how I got here today, I am the president of the Jeremiah Morris Fan Club. And, uh, and some of you may not even know that Jeremiah is a lead pastor here. And a, a dear friend, Jeremiah, uh, works with some of us pastors from across the city in what is known as the Houston Church Planting Network. He serves on the board uh, with me, and uh, it's an honor to know him. And so I love him, and therefore, I, I love you, even though I don't really know you well. I'm going to share a message with you today from Isaiah 6 that is important because, well, let me give you two reasons why I'm, I'm doing this message. One, I know that this room is filled with people probably all over the, the spiritual continuum. And I think that this message, in this passage, speaks to us at any place in our spiritual formation. Two, I mean this sincerely, I think you are uniquely positioned as a church. I love this city. I pastored the church that uh, I planted 28 years ago on the southeast part of this city, but really with a heart for the whole city. And so I've seen a number of churches planted across the city. That's what we focus on. That's what we do. I've not seen a church positioned as you are to make an impact really in the whole city. I know that part of the important role that you have is to love the people in your life and to model the good news of Jesus and speak the good news of Jesus to people. And this you should do. But I'm also aware that sometimes in, in a generation, God raises up a congregation that is just uniquely positioned for influence. And I really believe that about you. I don't say that to flatter you in any way. I say that hopefully to help you uh, be blessed but to assume the responsibility that God gives you along the way. So, I want to talk to you today about how to change the world. Not too grandiose, is it? How to change the world. And I'm guessing, while that sounds really big, we can start pretty small in our understanding of this. Like, if you could change someone, who do you want to change these days? Because truth is, kind of we're wired that way. We want to change things in our life. Maybe we want to change yourself, and maybe that's where you begin. You say, the small place I want to begin is there some changes in me. I really don't care about changing someone else. Or maybe you have a spouse that really needs some changing. Or you have a wayward child. Or there's some guy at work, he's ruining it for everyone. You really want to change that person because it's going to make a big difference for everyone else as well. And it's not so bad to want to see people change and even to be instrumental in their change because, I mean, you know, if we get to see some people change, it blesses the people around them, everybody wins. But how do you do that? How do you influence really significant change in people? Can you do that? How does it happen? Well, in Isaiah, 
The book of Isaiah is in the Old Testament. If you're new to the Bible, Isaiah is the prophet of God speaking to the children of Israel, but at this point they're broken up into two nations. There's a, a northern nation called Israel, a southern nation called Judah, and Isaiah is speaking primarily to Judah, but really to, to the whole nation. He's God's voice in the nation, and in Isaiah 6, we get to see how God worked in Isaiah to prepare him to be this voice. But in the first five chapters, five chapters before what we read today, what we see is that God's people have been disobedient to God, grossly disobedient, in spite of the fact that God has been really, really good to his people. And so God wants to change that. So what does God do when he wants to change a wandering people? Well, he changes one person. That's what he does. He changes one person who can have an influence in the whole nation. And the reason this passage is so significant is because while this is about how Isaiah was changed by God, called by God, what we see happening in Isaiah is the same thing that God does in people like you and me. Given time, we can show you all in the New Testament, you know, the part that shows us who Jesus is, what it means to follow Him, and these very same things are the works of God in people like you and me. So, what I want to walk you through this morning is um, what I will call four changes that God brings about when He wants to change the world, and He starts with a person like you and like me. Four changes, all of them are perspectives, and they're sequential. So imagine dominoes, and you know, one domino falls, and the next one falls, and the next one, and as I show you these sequential changing perspectives that God brought to Isaiah, brings to us, you'll stay with me until that fourth one, I think when that domino falls, it won't sound so grandiose to talk about how we change the world. So, here we go, four things. We're going to move pretty quickly. Here's the first one. God gives a new perspective on himself, a new perspective on God. The passage begins, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And God gives Isaiah a vision that changes him. Now, we all have a perspective on God. You walked in with a perspective. I don't know where you got your perspective. And your perspective may or may not be accurate. But you want it to be accurate. Because your view of God has everything to do with about how you feel in the world. Or the kinds of decisions you make. A view of God determines how you feel. And there's no better illustration of that than the last, what, 16 months or whatever. I mean... In a world like ours with a global pandemic raging, some people are filled with anxiety, troubled all the time. And if you view God as a God who is distant and disinterested, it's no wonder that this would be a scary world. But it's different if you know that God is on His throne and that the train of His robe is filling the temple. In other words, what's happening in that throne room is still connected to what's happening in, in the world where we worship and connect with God and are led along by God. 
And so you know that God is engaged and He's not wringing His hands in worry. Even if the king dies, Uzziah had reigned on the throne for 52 years. Imagine a leader, 52 years. It would be most all of your lifetime. He's the only one you know and he dies and there's all of this uncertainty. But when the king dies, the king of kings has not died. When the king's not on his throne, God's still on his throne. And the train of his robe is still filling the temple. And so, so you don't have to be filled with anxiety, even if it's a cancer diagnosis. I mean, not the kind of anxiety that makes you wonder if God is even real. Or when there's a global pandemic. Or when you're trying to buy a house in this market and you've been saving for so long and it just seems like everything's turning against you, you can rest in the fact that there is a good God and a powerful God and He cares about you. How you view God determines how you feel and it determines also, it shapes your moral and ethical decisions. Because you see, if you think God is indifferent or if He's like somehow some unenlightened old man who's not woke to today's sexuality or justice or if he's not aware of how to make a buck in the world then you're gonna feel like you're all on your own in your decision-making or you're just gonna follow the herd but if God is high and lifted up if he's seated on his throne and he's holy 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 then that means he has a different perspective, high and lifted up, than everyone else. And his holiness informs what is truly good with all of the cacophony of different voices coming your way. His holiness is that you can trust him with your sexuality, with your marriage, with your business, and with justice in the world, and how to make and use money because he's good in that way and you can trust him in that way it determines your view of God and by the way there's a long list of things it determines but it does determine how you feel and how you make decisions in the world and you might ask well wait but Isaiah he got to have this big vision of God you know so impactful was his vision that it shapes his life I haven't had that kind of vision of God good news you don't have to. Isaiah did. And so did a lot of other people in the Bible. And God gave us the miracle of Scripture where the way He has revealed Himself to people in time and through time is recorded for us, preserved for us, so that we have this opportunity. If you're new to the Christian faith, listen, one of our opportunities is we come into a community with other people and we open the Bible, and when you open the Bible, God opens His mouth. That God shows Himself, He reveals Himself to us. And so, He corrects, He shapes our perspective of Him so that we see God for who He really is. And second domino, and we see ourselves for who we really are. You see, the, the second of these changes that come with Isaiah, for Isaiah is, he sees God clearly and when he does then he gets a new perspective of himself we get a new perspective of ourselves when we see God this way 
most often we see ourselves in comparison to others. So when you think about yourself, you think, well, I'm no Mother Teresa. I'm not Bertie Madoff. I'm, I'm me, right? I, uh, years ago, I was with a couple of friends, and one of them 6'6", six, six, all you tall people. One of them 6'4", and when they took the picture of us, because we're buddies, we're just, you know, they're hanging, get a picture of me. I, I swear there was a hole somewhere that I was standing in because I look like a munchkin. I deleted the photo because it was not accurate. It made me look so small. And take a look. This is what the average American male looks like. Google it, right? So I used to be 5'10". 60 years of gravity has made me 5'9". That's the average American male. And so I can see myself as the short guy next to the 6'6 and the 6'4 guy. But the truth is something else. How do you see yourself really? Are you a good person, a bad person? Are you right, wrong, Because the truth is, it's not until we see God rightly that we see ourselves rightly. And that's what this beautiful passage is all about. Isaiah sees God for who he is, and how does he respond? Verse 5, and I said, woe is me, which just means, that's Hebrew for I'm in deep weeds, right? So, woe is me, for I'm lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So he sees himself in light of God, and he says, woe is me. And you you must know, that's how it works. So what's the problem? Well, he says, he's lost spiritually, and he is morally unclean. He says, I have unclean lips. He's become aware of how unholy, unglorious, and unlike God are the purposes of his lips because he would lie to make a sale. Or he would would use words in a way that are cutting or damaging or make promises that he, he wouldn't keep. And so he's so aware that this is true of him but also true of others. And that's the people with whom he lives. I wonder, you know, when we talk about sin and confessing our sin, does that make you defensive? I know a lot of friends who, when they investigate, investigated Christianity for the first time, it's like, you people are always talking about how you're bad. And it's, it became clear to me, it's like, man, I don't feel that at all. I mean, as a Christian, I don't feel that at all. What I feel is that God has this agenda of giving me a brand new identity, and he, he gives me this new sense of self about being a, a son of God, a priest in God's kingdom, a citizen in God's kingdom, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. But the clarity about that only happens, it always passes through the woe. I mean, this awareness of my own brokenness and my need for God. And that's what happens in this passage. The moment Isaiah says, woe is me, all of a sudden it seems to have activated God 
to act in a way that he hasn't yet acted for the sake of Isaiah. Let me say it differently. Only when we see God rightly do we see ourselves rightly, and when we see ourselves rightly, it triggers something else that God is going to do in our life. And this is the third domino. It's a new perspective on redemption. For many, redemption or salvation is not what we thought. We thought that God was going to bless our goodness. Now, I'm not telling you what you thought. I'm just saying that's the most common perspective. The most common perspective is, uh, you know, God wants me to be a good person. I know I haven't always been a good person. I've broken a few of God's purposes, God's laws, and so I'm going to get that right. I'm going to get my act together. I'm going to be better. That's what we say, right? I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to treat people better. I'm going to do better. Because the general belief about redemption is that when I do these things better, then God's going to bless me. That's the way it works, we think. And i got to tell you, all that is, is religion. And it's not the teaching of the Bible. Actually, Isaiah did not do better. He simply acknowledged his brokenness and his sin. And let me remind you what happens. Verse 6, then, I'm broken, and then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, and he said, behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. So don't miss the progression. You see God for who He is. You see yourself for who you are. And if you really do, and you look up to heaven and you say, God, this is who I am. I'm lost. I am broken. Then, here's what happens. Isaiah didn't do something, prove something, earn something. No. He just turned to God in desperation. And here's what happens. Grace. Just grace. Just a flood of goodness that He didn't deserve, that we don't deserve. When we look to God acknowledging who we are and who He is, it's grace that floods our way. The image of the burning coal that touches His lips really kind of says a couple of things to us. One, it points to 740 years later when Jesus would bring about this taking away of guilt and this atoning for sin on the cross. Christianity is about how Jesus fulfills all of the promises of the Bible and this promise that our guilt can be taken away. Listen, your guilt can be taken away. Whatever guilt you carried in today, your sin can be covered, atoned for, so that it's not this barrier between you and God because this is the gift of salvation through Jesus on the cross. But this imagery says something else. It says something about how it is that we know God. Because so often I think we think redemption is um, it's a set of beliefs. But when in fact, it includes this experience of who God is. Oftentimes in the Bible, we, we hear that we ex the experience with God is like a fire 
So Isaiah says, it's these burning coals, right? Uh, he says that this seraphim, by the way, seraphim means fire, this angelic being brought the coal and touched his lips. Stop a moment and think about the graphic, experiential part of that. Fire touched my dirty lips. It's this encounter with God. Have you ever had an encounter with God like that? Blaise Pascal, maybe you know the French philosopher, maybe read some of Pascal. He had an experience with God and he journaled that experience. And he took the page from his journal and he sewed it into the lining of his coat so that it would be next to his heart his whole life. When Pascal died, it was discovered, and maybe you've heard about this because it's talked about often, the page of the journal said this. It says, The Year of Grace, 1654. Monday, the 23rd of November, from about half past 10 in the evening until half past 12. Fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and the savants. Certitude. Certitude. Feeling. Joy. Peace. It's a personal encounter. And we read that because it's Pascal, right? I mean, it's the heady guy. It's the philosopher. It's the dreamer. But he says, no, no, no. My experience with God is like this personal experience. I mean, have, have you a story to tell? I mean, some story like that where you would write it in your journal, you would keep it with you because you've experienced God. Well, this experience left Isaiah with a kind of confidence and a new ability to, to hear God. And, uh, and God speaks for the first time in the passage. Isaiah 6, verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, go and say to this people. And there's a unique message that Isaiah was to say to God's people. Now, without a perspective, a new perspective on redemption, I'm guessing Isaiah is not volunteering. I'm guessing Isaiah is saying, who am I? Rather than saying, here am I, send me. But when he had this experience and this redemption of his own soul, then the next domino falls. And I hope you've stayed with me until this domino falls because it's a new perspective on, on purpose. On purpose. You know, our purpose tends to be about us until we experience redemption. Um, your experience of meeting the, the very God of heaven it changes how you experience purpose in life. Let me tell you what it's not about. Because in Houston, Texas, in 2021, there's a lot of messages that says that 
your purpose once you come to faith in Jesus and begin to follow Him is some better version of the American dream. So that you can have this peachy family with fewer problems and be happy all the time. Now, I want you to hear that God's purpose for you once you come to know Him, and we see it in Isaiah, is this, this compelling sense that you're made for something greater than that. I mean, it's great if you drive a German car. That's not what you were made for. Alright? It's, it's not this greatest celebration of your life. You are really made for God. And the greatest satisfaction of your soul is going to be tied to seeing that your purpose is tied to who God is and what He's doing in the world. Notice God says to Isaiah, who's going to go for me? I mean, there are people that God sets apart, His people, and He says, they're going to go for me. Who will go for us? And Isaiah's like, ah, I didn't think I would be in on something like that before, but I'm in for that now because I... I've known what it's meant to be redeemed. To have a, a grander purpose than just myself. And to have the perfect family. Jesus emphasized this so much. In John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you follow Jesus, know this, that those whom God saves, he sends. That Jesus says, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And to be sent, to know deep in your heart that you are sent by God, is a game changer in terms of purpose. The Apostle Paul affirmed this in 2 Corinthians 5.20. When he said, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So, being a part of a church and hearing messages and being a part of a community of faith should encourage you and strengthen you but listen the end game here is not that you go home and have a better version of yourself it is that God is doing something that you now get to be a part of and he would set you aside and say you are an ambassador for Christ you speak you're sent by him and you speak on his behalf I have grandkids I have the seventh seventh grandkid on the way and uh, so I've had some of those experiences where, you know, all the adults are in one room and the kids are in another room. And there's some, I don't know, some angry words. Maybe there's a slap or something that you hear. And there's some crying. And then one of those kids comes running to the adult room. And they're going to, you know, either make some excuse or plead a case. And they begin to talk, you know. If that happens to you, let me suggest something. you do something. This will just help you understand the nature of being sent, right? So, when that happens to you, just say, Hey, wait, wait. I need you to go back to that room and give everybody some news. 
we're about to open up some ice cream. And we want everyone to have some ice cream. Now, they came in, they're all upset, right? Everyone's going to have some ice cream. Now, what I want you to do is go back and tell all the other kids that as long as everyone's getting along and there's no fussing going on, we're about to have some ice cream. Now, I don't know about the value of parenting this way at all. That's not the point, all right? But I want you to look at that kid when you tell them because they're going to stand up tall. He or she's going to stick out their chest and say, all right, matter of fact, you may not get it out of your mouth before they're running back to the other room. Here's why. Because there's something about being sent. I mean, knowing deep in your heart that you are sent, that emboldens you, that gives you a different kind of purpose. If you know you are sent by God, by God Himself, you don't wake up listlessly wondering what you're going to do with your life. You're sent by God. I get it. Some people say, sent to do what? Here's the good news. To go home. I mean, you can be sent to go home as a new person, a redeemed person, to, to love and follow Jesus and see the impact that that makes in your own home. One of the things we're sent to do as followers of Jesus is to make disciples. So I told you I've been a pastor for almost 28 years. One of my favorite stories to tell about what God has done in the life of our church is really, uh, I was sitting at a leadership retreat. The uh, room was about like this, full of folks. And uh, they began, the people up front began to tell the story of... Um, some people who were in a small group. We call it small group. I think y'all call it house church. We, they're in small group together, growing as followers of Jesus. And all these people, uh, they started calling names of these people who led these different you know, house churches, small groups. And, and they're standing up. And then they, they kind of bring the story together like this. And they said, now, uh, Vijay Rajaji, who is an Indian American guy that's part of our church, and his wife Sonia, he had them stand and said... Uh, all of these people were discipled by Vijay and Sonia. And then they had this like family tree chart that said, these two people have helped disciple or their disciples have discipled some 300 people. Well, I remember the day that I met Vijay. He was not a Christian. He was, a, um, he was a kind atheist, you know. If there are some atheists in the room, you know, there are some angry atheists and belligerent atheists, and they're kind atheists. And he was a genuine seeker and a kind atheist, and he would quickly enter into conversation, uh, a brilliant guy, and fire came. And he became a follower of Jesus. And he began to live sent. There's joy and purpose in living a sent life. And started making disciples. God's called you to that. Maybe not the same way He does, but He's called you to that in some way that we are to make disciples of Jesus. One more thing and I'll close. 
We're called to plant a church. You're doing that, right? I mean, you're sometime in and out to planting a church. You know, the data shows if you want to see people come to know Jesus, plant a church. If you want to see, to see systemic change in a community, plant a church. Sociologist Robert Woodbury published his research of uh, more than 10 years. And uh, his research, really relevant to me, was to, to see the kind of impact that a church has on a community, especially those churches that lead with a message of redemption, the hope that Jesus brings to people's lives. And so um, he studied those churches, again, primarily those who share their faith with other people and see that as a part of their mission, and then to see how it affected communities. And to quote from his research, he says, areas where Protestant churches had a significant presence, even in the past, are on average more economically developed today, with comparatively better health, lower infant mortality, lower corruption, greater literacy, higher educational attainment, especially for women, and more robust membership in non-governmental associations. So don't miss what's happening. He says, his research indicates that when people... When churches are planted in a community and people are leading with their faith, that what then happens is this value is planted in the hearts of individuals so that the community is literally transformed by the presence of dynamic local churches. Listen, this is why churches like mine and yours are committed to planting churches in our city the Houston Church Planting Network. Because we understand that sentness is a gift given to us that when we live that way, God uses us not only in individuals' lives, but to transform whole communities. So, when it starts in us, when we begin to see God for who He is, ourselves for who we are, when we understand what redemption's about and we experience the God who is like a fire we can embrace a sense of being sent gosh what a gift it, if I could just give you for a moment a sense of being sent and you embrace it wholeheartedly I can't imagine why anyone would ever let go of that. Because you know that not only you're loved by God, but you're a part of what God is doing in the world. So when God wanted to change a nation, He worked in one person. He made Him the voice of that nation. And you might say, well, I'm not Isaiah. And you're not. But you're you. And God wants to revive and restore all the people in your life. And He begins with you. So to change the world, God first changes you. Uh, I'm a big fan of Tim Keller, who is a pastor, if you're not familiar with Tim Keller. St. Tim, as I like to call him. I heard him say this. He says, when the Bible says God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, here's what he's saying. He's saying, I work with the most unpromising material. He's saying, I took that 
that coward Abraham or that dysfunctional father Isaac. I took that schemer con man Jacob and I changed them. I made them great people and they changed the world. He says, I took that meek Moses and I made him a leader. And I took that, that wishy-washy Peter and I made him the rock. And I will add, and I took Isaiah and I made him a voice to the people. What would God do with you? With, how about this for the Texas plural, with y'all? If, if you let the change begin right here with you and live as sent people. Would you bow with me? With our heads bowed. You know, when we do business with God, most often it's through a prayer. It's through a prayer just like this. And so, I want to invite you to uh, turn your heart to God. And if you're new to the Christian faith, if you're just checking it out, I invite you to pray a prayer like this. To say, God, would you show me who you really are? And then I would urge you to get together with some people around a Bible and begin to discover more and more of who God really is. And maybe if you're aware of your own brokenness, you would turn to God and say, God, I need you. Like Isaiah, I'm lost. And I want Jesus to come into my life. And so, maybe your prayer would be like this. Jesus, would you come and be the Lord of my life? Would you forgive my sin? Would you, would you do that work in me that I can't do? I thank you for loving me in spite of all that I've done. For taking my sin on the cross and being resurrected to show who you really are. And maybe for some of you, the prayer is about being sent. God, I, uh, I know that you made me yours. I want to live being sent. Sent to my home and the marketplace, my neighborhood and the schools and in some ways to the world. Help me to recover a sense of being sent by you. Father in heaven, I do pray for a heart to change the world. For us not to be shaken, but to know that you are good and you are powerful and you're at work in us and you want to be at work through us. I pray for Seven Mile Road that this church would live into your, your amazing plan for them. A plan that gives you glory and brings about good in the people of this city. And I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.